Church, is this on? Is that on? Yeah, there we go. I just want to take a second as things hit me. I just want to take a moment just to thank God for money. I, uh, I appreciate so much. Uh, you know, a lot of people have one job to do on Sunday morning. He has what is two full-time jobs in a lot of churches. And sometimes Monty, he's organizing praise team, he's doing all this stuff. And sometimes he's literally sprinting to get the class to do it. Thank you, brother. It, it is not lost on us. Thank you for that. Surrounded by incredible people. Again, I'm just, you know, I'm not leaving anybody out. Just a couple things that hit me. I'm, I'm blown away. The things you don't see, uh, you know, Brian came in on Friday and spent all day on Friday just to answer the phones in case anybody called. I overheard, I think, only three people did, but there were three people that were blessed Friday because Brian came in when the office was closed to be here. So we don't, I just want you, every now and then it just hits me. I want to share it. I still haven't figured out what the Sean guy does, but we'll get to that eventually. <laughs> We love each other already. I just have to throw, I love you, man. But um, seriously, it's, it's wonderful to be here. I just, sometimes things that, that happen behind the scenes, I think it's important for us to celebrate that uh, here. Let's, let's begin. We're, we're doing this series. We're looking at the life of Jesus, like not just isn't it cool that he did these things, but how did he do these things and how did he learn and train to do it? And, and I will start with the text that I'm actually not going to preach out of mostly. We're going to start here and we'll see, we'll, we'll back up to it. But I, I want to start with a really important uh, moment in the life of Jesus. It's in uh, Luke chapter 23, uh, starting verse 32. This is the gospel of our Lord. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as always do, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we did this a little bit last week. One of the things I like to do, I call it a little bit of cultural theology. What I mean by that is some of the best theology that we'll get comes from pretty unlikely places. And I'm, I can almost guarantee you've seen this one before, but I don't know, eight, nine years ago or something, at this time of the year, some cultural theologians got together and, and put this piece together, probably not knowing it's great theology when they're making a Super Bowl commercial but it is. And so I want you to hear from this, and I want you to hear it's a little bit of a tribute also to one of the greatest cultural theologians, the late, great Betty White. So take a look. Sloppy, Mike. Sloppy. Mike, what is your deal, oh, man? Oh, come on, man. You've been riding me all day. Mike, you're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. Oh, baby. Oh, 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 Better? There. Hey! I'm open! 
That hurt. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Still one of the best Super Bowl commercials of all time. And here's the thing. They don't mean it to be good theology, but it's really good theology. Why? Because all of us have these pivotal moments in our lives. And it may be just one moment in time. It may be a time or a season of your life. We've all had Betty White moments when we are not our best self. We've all had times like that. And, and sometimes you might be thinking of these epic failure moments or these terrible times of your life. Sometimes it's smaller but symbolic moments that shape us in important ways if we're willing to learn. I want to take you to a simple Sunday morning when I was, I don't know, 11 years old or so. And we showed up at church and what was going on in the environment of our time as children in that day. I don't know what it is for you, but there tend to be these fads from time to time. And there'll be games that children will play and they catch on for some crazy reason. A lot of them are online and apps now, but I can't even believe we did this. But I'm just telling you, for like a year in our school, everybody did this thing called pencil fighting. I I don't know if anybody remembers this, but, you know, back when we didn't use mechanical pencils as much, we had wooden pencils, and we would come in, and, and this is basically the rules were simple. You held on to your wooden pencil, the other person would pull theirs back, and you just kind of take turns, like, slapping pencils at each other, and, you know, the one that broke first lost. <laughs> and, and we would, I know this is insane, but we used to, like, keep stats. I still remember I had double-digit wins with this one pencil, and I didn't want it to break, and we knew which ones were good, and you couldn't cheat and bring the rubber pencils that didn't break, and all that. It was crazy, but we, for over a year, this was like the obsession in our school. So maybe you could imagine the day, one simple Sunday morning, where my friend Chad and I discovered a treasure that we did not know existed. Three words on the door, church supply room. <laughs> so we go in there, and sure enough, there are two boxes that we walk out of the most glorious, colorful weaponry that the pencil warfare world has ever known. And we're just... We're out in the back of the church. By the way, I don't advise this for anybody. We're back in the church, and we're going at it, and there's like a pile of small lumber there at our feet. And then I remember the red face of the elder who showed up and escorted us back to our respective parents. Got the car to go home that day. My mom at that time already, my father had passed, and so she's a single mom doing her thing, and I'm ready for it. Ready? Right? I'm ready for the speech ready for the angry words, the lecture. I'm ready for the promise of punishment. She didn't say anything. The reason I remember that day, and it was a pivotal moment for me, is because when I looked over, all I could see were her tears. Being a parent now, I can now imagine that what was it that made that day different? Like, I deserve the punishment, she'll give it to me and all that. But on that day, why, why the tears? I don't know, was it one of those days, maybe some of you had this morning, right? When you get up and nothing's working right and the clothes are wrinkled and the food isn't coming out right and you're fighting on the way to church. I don't know, you know, that happens. You look good now, but we know you fought on the way here. So you, know, you come and it, maybe it was one of those days. Or, or, or maybe it's she had poured her heart out so much with the children, the children's ministry and teaching the Bible class. Or surely part of it is just the embarrassment that comes with seeing the foolishness of your son broadcast all over the church. I don't know what it was, but I will never forget the look of hurt on her face. And it was a pivotal moment for me. Even though it was a small thing, it was a pivotal moment because it was one of the first times that God taught me a lesson because I'm hard-headed. He's got to keep teaching me again and again and again. You know what it is? 
our actions have consequences. Our choices have consequences. And those choices we make at everyday moments of our lives actually shape us as human beings and deeply affect the lives of other people. We all have pivotal moments. And that's why I think of this story that we just started, this defining moment. It's a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus and really the entire world that we started with, right? And if you're like me, sometimes I can forget that in the moment that Jesus is hanging on the cross, he had a choice. Right? Do you remind yourself of that from time to time? He had a choice when he's hanging on the cross. And did you hear what he had to face? He had to face all of the voices that are like hurling at him, literally it says, to be something he's not. It's hitting him again and again, right? On the cross. He had a choice. One person after another. It's literally repeated three times in just six or seven verses. Three times. Prove yourself. Prove who you are. By getting off the cross. Prove yourself by coming down from the cross. And listen, he had a choice. He could have done it that way. In fact, we stopped before we got there, but Luke records the choice that he makes in verse 46. It goes like this. Father, into my hands I take my life. I, into my hands I take my life. In, in, in other words, I'm going to choose my way of doing this. I'm actually going to listen to what these voices are telling me. I'm going to get off the cross. I'm going to prove who I am. I'm going to save myself. And in that moment, Jesus called legions of angels to come down, lay waste to the hill, took everybody out except for his mom and his best friend. Is that the way the story went? No, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and my life. That's the choice he made. But listen to me. He could have done it the way I just told it. It was a choice. And in that moment, don't you thank God that he made the choice that he did? Would you call that a pivotal moment? Not just defining his character that he was revealing to the world, but it was a pivotal moment for the entire human race. We're doing this series we call CrossFit. Why? Because we don't want to just look at cool things and powerful things and life-changing things Jesus did. We want to ask the question, how did he do it? How did he prepare for that moment on the cross? What did he do? He trained for it. We said that before. He trained for it every day of his life. So here's the question I just want to think about. How did Jesus train for that particular moment that changed the cosmos? Well, this little piece is actually a a review of something we talked about when I was first here, partially in, in the sermon, partially in the Bible class. But I want you to think about this. When Jesus is hearing those voices hurling at him to get him off the cross, he had heard those voices before. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's hearing them say, if you really are the son of God, come off the cross. You don't have to die on the cross. He'd heard the voices before. Does anybody remember where in the Bible, in the gospel stories of Jesus, he had heard something like this before? By the way, you can answer this. Somebody did in person. In the temptation in the wilderness. Almost word for word. Again, this is a review we talked about in the past. But, but think about this. Jesus is baptized. God declares his identity. This is my son, my beloved son. And he comes out of the baptismal waters. He's led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, 
into the wilderness and he is tempted. And the devil begins his temptation with the same words. If you are the son of God, prove it. And the central, literally, temptation of the story is when the devil says, bow down to me and it will all be yours. Again, quick reminder of this is it's really important. You know this in your own life. It's true for Jesus too. Most of us are not tempted by 20,000 things. We're tempted by the same four or five things again and again. Devil's not stupid. He'll hit you in the same place, right? And sometimes we fail and fall and sometimes we don't. And God is walking us all the way through the journey. The same thing's true with Jesus. He's hit in the same place in the same way from literally the beginning of his ministry as you saw till the end. I would argue this is the way I would put it. The central temptation of Jesus is this. The central temptation of Jesus is to become king without the cross. Jesus' temptation is to become king without the cross. You don't have to go to the cross. You can have it all now. And that's literally what they said to him, hanging on cross in the end. And I say, why does that matter for all of us? Because... I tell people every time I get the honor of doing a baptism, every time, one way or another, whether it's in private or in public, in some way or another, I will read Romans 6. You died with Christ. What is baptism? It's a moment. It's not a ritual you check off. By the way, God doesn't need it. He does it for us. We are baptized. We're buried with Christ, and we are raised with Christ. You are resurrected now. Go read it in the message, by the way. It's glorious. We have left the sin country of death behind, and now we're in this glorious new country with the Lord. That's who you are. Now, here's the thing. I will tell, every time I do a baptism, I will say this. I want to tell you the greatest temptation you will ever face in your life. It's not a particular sin. Greatest temptation of your life is to forget who you are. And I'm telling you the rest of your life. And look at folks, you're dealing with this every day, but it's true for all of us. The temptation you will get is to forget who you are. God says, you're my girl. You're my boy. I'm delighted in you. And you will fail. I'm telling you that. And in that moment, the evil one will not just pounce on the fact that he got you to fail. He's going to say, now you are not this and you are not that. Greatest temptation you will ever face is the temptation to forget who you are. Rewind your life to the moments you regret. Is it not true? It's a Betty White moment. You are not yourself in that time. The glorious thing about Jesus is that he's wrestling and training and fighting with remembering who he is. This is the temptation we all face all of the time. So here's the question. How did he do it? How did he prepare for that moment we just talked about? We'd heard the voices before, but here's the simple thing I want to say. He prepared for those moments in what the Bible and Christian history call solitude. He prepared for these moments in solitude. This is the story I want us to look at a little more deeply. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Luke chapter 4. This is after the temptation scene. It's really only three verses I want to zero in on, starting in verse 42. But I want to give you the context, and maybe you will hear with what's going on in his life some things that sound familiar. Start up in Luke 4, verse, 30, verse 36. Jesus has just healed a demon-possessed man. Now, I know we read this like it's, oh, wow, Jesus did another miracle. Hold on. He healed a possessed guy. Like, the devil is, like, having, wreaking havoc with this guy. And Jesus casts out a demon. Then, in verse 36, it says, All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits. And they come out. Listen to this line, important. And the news about him 
spread throughout the whole surrounding area. So Jesus wants to rest a little bit. He goes to his home base. He's with Peter at his house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and he heals her. And then it says in verse 40, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. Heard that before? But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now pause there for a moment before we get to the meat of the text. What's going on in the life and ministry of Jesus? News about him spread. Everybody's taking selfies. Everybody's posting on social media. Have you seen this guy? Do you know what he did? And the crowd is growing and growing and growing. His popularity is through the roof. He can't even go home without the entire town coming to the door. He's touching each life. It's blowing up. What does Jesus do next? What would you do next? You know what I'd do? I'd open the baptistry. <laughs> Come on, man. We got the crowds. Let's go. Uh, this would be a great time in Jesus' life to launch again the What If campaign. And let's raise some money. Let's get the membership roles going. Let's have new starting point classes. Let's just fill it up. Why? Man, everybody's talking about this Jesus guy. And he's here to get the message out. What does Jesus do? Look at verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. You don't have to go anywhere else. Hint, you don't have to go to the cross. You can stay right here and we can build a kingdom right here, right now. But he said, I must listen to the words of purpose. He knows our mission statement. Live with purpose. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the other towns too. Because that is why I was sent. And he left. And he kept on preaching in the surrounding area. Jesus trained for the critical moments of his life in part by stepping back in moments of solitude. You've got to hold this message together with what we talked about last week. How did Jesus train for his life and his ministry? First, he dove into people, into relationships, and he was real and he was open. And like the tide, there is a rhythm to Jesus' life. He dives in with people and then he will step back. He dives in with people and then he will step back in times of solitude and silence. By the way, solitude, we're going to talk about it as kind of a general category in a practice. It's not just kind of a, a practice that you do. It's also a particular place for Jesus. It's one of the great things you see in scripture. Do you know when it says he went to a solitary place, do you know what the actual word is? Anybody know what the word is? Some of you know, look at Dana, but you know what it is. It says Jesus went to the desert. He went to the wilderness. Jesus went back to the place he started his ministry. And there is something throughout Christian history that says, if I want to know who I am, I'm forgetting who I am, you step back into a solitary space to the desert wilderness places of life and you let God tell you like an anchor for the soul or a compass for the soul who you are all over again. Jesus went to the desert. Why? The first time he went to the desert, he went not because the devil told him to. God did. Spirit led him there. And the devil's voice is not the only voice he heard. Saturated in the earlier story, you hear Jesus again and again saying the words of God back. And this is coming on the heels of God telling him who he is. In the desert throughout Christian history, 
The desert, solitary places, quiet places, alone places are times and places where God reminds us who we are. We know this from ancient Christian history. We know it from your life too, right? Go back in Christian history, these folks called the desert fathers and mothers, a guy named Anthony. It's an awesome story. We'll talk about him some more. But he got tired of all of the kind of commercialism of the church of his day and all of the shallowness. And so he just 20 years, he went out to the desert to be alone with God. The problem was people found out he knew God. So they kept coming and asking him about it. So he'd move farther out and they found him again and he'd move farther out and they kept finding him. People did this in Christian history, but we do it today. Why is it that students and men and women or whatever churches go on retreats? Because we know Sometimes we need to step back from our normal activities and lives to be reminded who we are and what it's all about. We've done it for a long time. Listen, long before LeBron James was marketing the app Calm, Jesus taught us that solitude matters. By the way, Jesus doesn't charge you for it. I know the app's free, but LeBron is not, right? So Jesus says, look, step away from this. Why? By the way, so important, this is not just a moment that Jesus did this. It was a continual practice of his life. Look a little bit later from, we we looked in chapter 4. Look down two verses in chapter 5. By the way, this comes on the heels of the great healing of the leper. Does amazing things. By the way, he tells the leper, don't tell anybody about it. What does he do? He goes, tells everybody about it. So chapter 5, verse 15. It says, the news about Jesus spread. (laughs) All the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Do you notice every time the crowd gets big, Jesus steps back. Every time he starts hearing the voices, oh man, you can do it right now. It's all about you right now. Forget that crossing. Every time he steps back. Every time. But listen to this last part. This is so important. Jesus, listen to this word, often withdrew, and now you know It says lonely places. Can you guess what that word is? It's the desert. Jesus often withdrew to the desert to solitude and prayed. Hear me. It wasn't something he did every now and then. It was part of the rhythm of his life. Here's a way to think about it. I teach this to our our cops, this little piece to our law enforcement officers when I get a chance to train them. By the way, I quote Aristotle, not Jesus. Try to do the Athens thing so they don't know they're getting Jesus, but it's it's pretty cool. So here's the thing. Years ago now, it became really trendy for a lot of Christians to wear a little armband. And we had four letters on it. You remember this? What were those four letters? WWJD. What would Jesus do? By the way, cool book. If you wear it, it's fine. I'm not picking on it. Here's the only problem with it. It doesn't work. Because what we we did, the mentality of that, is that we're going to live our lives ethically like Jesus. By every moment we have a decision to make, we think in that moment, what would Jesus do? That's a cool thought. The only problem is it doesn't work. And we know this every other place of our life. Got my friend Jeff sitting right up here. We talked the other day. He's a football coach. I love football coaches. Jeff, how well would your team do if the first time you ran plays in a two-minute drills when you came out for a game? Doesn't work that way, does it? Doesn't matter what would coach do if you haven't practiced it before, right? We know this with music. We know it with anything else in life. Hear me. We put a lot of burden ourselves to to make the decision in the moment of what Jesus is doing. Hear me, the reason we're doing this series is because you don't ask the question in the moment. You rewind and say, what did did Jesus do to prepare for that moment? Does that make sense? 
I've often said it to students, students all the time. Here's the thing. If you wait till Friday night to be pure with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you're already lost. By the way, you're not lost. God will redeem it in grace. But you know what I'm saying? If I wait to the moment of passion to make a good decision, it's over. That decision is over. Hear me. You're not your life. Grace here. It's all good. If you wait till the time you actually have money to choose and learn to be generous, good luck with that. If you wait until that moment, this is me, and that person cuts you off in the middle of traffic, to be kind and gentle and bless them. <laughs> Good luck with that. Listen, it's not about what would Jesus do in this moment. It is what did Jesus do to prepare for that moment. Do you see that? He trained in solitude and silence. So here's, here's a simple message. We need solitude too. All of us need some kind of desert practice, some kind of wilderness rhythm to our lives. By the way, for some of you, you are wired this way. Literally a little over half the room is wired to recharge this way. You don't need this message. You need last week's. (laughs) Some of us, though, need to be reminded that part of the rhythm is stepping back, slowing down, turning everything off, and letting God's voice rise to the top. The way a mentor of mine put it all the time, he would quote this verse all the time. Psalm 145, verse 3. Listen to this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness, listen to this, God's greatness no one can fathom. It's the reason I started with the first sermon I did. God at the beginning and the end of the day is mystery. We can talk about him all day long. We can't figure him out. So here's the thought. Okay, we know that. Again, my mentor said this. I never thought about this before. Ask yourself this question. We do a lot of religious activity. What spiritual practice in your life allows God to be a mystery? You ever thought about that? What is a desert wilderness? Strip it away. Doesn't have to energize you, fire you up or whatever. You don't have to walk away with a great aha point. What practice in your life lets God be a mystery? Let's God just do something. You go to the wilderness and you don't know what God's doing. He's just going to do it. Isn't that interesting? Here's another way to think about it. Put the next slide up if you would... um, Kelly, this, I want to talk about the principle. Here's the principle. It's a principle of balance. I get this language adapted a little bit from Dallas Willard. We all need a balance. We're thinking about a spiritual training program in our life. We need a balance between practices of engagement and practices, what Dallas Willard calls them, of abstinence. I like the word letting go. Practices of, of engaging actively our life of faith and then times of stepping back and just letting go. Now, I don't have to tell you what the disciplines of engagement are. Ask anybody, what's some spiritual disciplines you ought to do? I can almost guarantee you the entire list are engagement disciplines. We worship, we sing, we pray out loud with words, we study and write things down, we read, we serve. Nothing wrong with any of those. It's wonderful. I love we have an app that says plug in. Great, that's last week. We need an app that also says step back. There needs to be some practices in our lives, and throughout Christian history, this has been true, and it's in the Bible here, of letting go. Have you ever thought about this? I never forget when my teacher said this. Did you know Jesus, in his humanity, said no to some people when they said, I need you? Now, hear me. He won't say it now. He said it's better when I leave, because the Holy Spirit's going to be here. But in his humanity, Jesus had to say no. No is a complete sentence. Some of you, the most important application of this message is to say no to something in your life, to step back and create space. And there are practices for this. There's a rhythm. There's a balance. By the way, it won't be 50-50. We're all wired to recharge different ways. But we have to have something that engages us with community and something that steps away and says, it's just me and you, God. 
So look at this great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It gives us a taste of the balance. His book called Life Together, the great martyr Christian history. This is what he says. This is putting the last two weeks together, right? Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. (laughs) If you cannot be on your own, I'm not beating you up. I'm just saying it might be God's invitation to say, step back, I got some business to do with you, not to make you mad or hurt you. There's some work for us to do. If I cannot, I'm a, I'm a people guy, so I'm telling you, I'm preaching the sermon I need to hear. Beware of community if you cannot be on your own. And the reverse is also true, but whoever cannot stand being community should also beware of being alone. Or did I already say that? Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Do you see that? So what, what are you most wired to do? I'm telling you, we, we have to engage people like we said last week, but if that's all you do, there's something missing in your spiritual diet. And... We need to be reminded this week, if it's just me and Jesus under the tree all the time, well, there's something missing there too. There's a balance that we're called to. And I'll just throw up here a couple of practices. How might we do this? Here's several different practices. We don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll give you the big picture. Don't, by the way, quick pause. Don't let any of this be a burden. If you walk away thinking, here's 50 other things I got to do, we're literally missing the point of this message, right? But there are ways of disconnecting, letting go talk about the first one in a second. Silence, right? Sometimes just taking times where we just don't talk, right? And we don't have noise coming in, right? My mentor said, speak what, only what love requires. That's great. Solitude, it's not just the category. It's also a practice. Go to a place where it's just you. And it might be a prayer room upstairs. It might be Lick Creek Park. It might be something like that. I don't know. It's something for you, right? Chastity, there, scripture tells us, In a marriage relationship, there are times where it actually is a blessing to say, for a period of time, we're not going to engage in physical intimacy so we can actually experience what greater, deeper relational intimacy looks like. That's actually a practice. Don't talk about it a lot, but it is. Sabbath, I've told you this before. I stake my ministry on rhythms that I have to hold to. Again, I'm trying. Didn't do a great job this week because I had to do some training. But largely, you will not see me or hear from me on Fridays. It's not a day off. It's a Sabbath. There's a different thing. It's a rhythm for me. If I want to do this for a long time, and I do, I've got to have that. That's just me. It may be different for you. But, but I would encourage you, if you never stop, maybe you don't start with a day. You pick two hours. i got friends of mine that work so hard, they said, I'm going to make it two hours where I just put my phone away and do nothing. My mentor calls it wasting time with God. I love this. Just, it's like a long ride in the car with a loved one. You don't have to talk all the time. Just be with God. Simplicity, frugality. This is becoming trendy now to downsize and not have as much. All of these are practice of letting go. Does that make sense? My favorite one I just want to mention quickly and we'll wrap this up. I did not know for much of my Christian life that there is a way of praying where you do not have to use words. I actually did research on this as part of my, my doctoral work. Like, and so, because we're short of tense repentance culture and it's hard to be silent. So I'm like, what is the shortest length of time to practice silence that's meaningful that I found from some Christian master? Eight minutes. So I encourage you, take eight minutes at least 20 minutes tends to be a good rhythm where you sit in the presence of God and you don't have to tell him anything. You don't have to apologize for anything. Hear me. You don't have to walk away with some big feeling in the back of your neck. You're just sitting in the presence of God. My mentor describes it this way. Imagine your, your life as a house. Sit on the front porch of your house. Let, invite Jesus to come in and walk around your house. Hear me. Do whatever he wants. You ready for this? And he didn't have to tell you what he did. Isn't that great? Invite Jesus into your heart just for eight minutes and say, do whatever you want, and you don't have to tell me you did anything. 
Some of you are such active people, so am I. You do not believe that will do anything. I promise you, you go to the gym, you work out once, you, you won't feel anything. Try that for a month and see if your life is not more in balance, in rhythm, and the moments of your life you're making better decisions. Just, just a thought. Jesus often withdrew. It doesn't have to be that practice, but have something where we step back and step away. These are the practices. Last thing I'll share before we wrap up the story here. Um, my, again, this is top five favorite quotes in all of Christian history. If you put it up there, if you want to dig into this deeper, tiny little book from Henry Nouwen called The Way of the Heart. Henry Nouwen has a spiritual gift of writing really short books that are really great. So go read them. We call them man books in <laughs> one of the groups I'm part of. Uh, sorry. Uh, so listen to this. Here's my warning. If you actually take seriously what Jesus practiced and what I'm telling you, a warning is it may not be easy at the beginning The promise is, if you stick with it, it will be an incredible blessing. Let me read this, and we'll finish up. Henry Nouwen. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, you know this to be true, right? Confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Has anybody been there before? If I quiet myself long enough, this thing can go crazy. What does he say? He gives some examples. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. This is my favorite one because I do this. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies. How many of you have carried on an entire conversation with somebody that wasn't there? You know what I'm talking about. I dream lustful dreams in which I'm wealthy, influential, and very attractive. Or if you're struggling with the opposite side, poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. (laughs) So what do we do? I'm telling you, this is why we don't turn off anything. Because this is what happens. I try to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false self and all this vainglory. i got to prop myself up by the things that I'm a coach and I'm a friend and I'm a minister or whatever. If you just let all that go, God will do something. Now, here's the magic. Listen to this such a great line, one of the greatest lines in Christian history. The task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell, to my desert place. Until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. Here's the promise. The voices will go away. The tug will go away. Forever? No. Jesus often withdrew. But when you feel crowded in, when you feel like you're not being yourself, it's not a Snickers bar. It is solitude. You say, God, would you tell me who I am all over again? And I promise you the pounding on the door of your soul will subside. That's God's promise. And here's the thing, it might change your life and the lives of everybody around you. It's a good friend of mine, we'll call him Mike, that's not his name, mentor of mine. He was talking to me about what it means to prepare to actually have an impact on your life. And, and one of the things he was talking about is how he almost went the wrong way. He had a, a critical moment, pivotal moment in his life. Again, he was a minister, and he was a, a significant national leader, and there was a guy that really was essentially a cult leader. Right? He was essentially ran a cult. And he wanted Mike to be in his organization. And Mike told me about this day. He invited him to a hotel room. You picture this. He walks into the hotel room. It's set all up to be this powerful, intimidating place. And all of his lieutenants, that's what he called them, but all the people are around this guy. And he said, Mike said, the first thing he did is he just pumped me up, man. He just talked about all the incredible things, the gifts I had, all the great things I was doing. And he said, just what I was thinking, oh, the, I, wow, I'm the guy. Then he flipped it and he tore him down. He talked about this flaw and this weakness and you were missing it here and there and all the things. He said, by the time he was done, he made me think the only way I could actually be a meaningful human being is to sell out and be part of his organization and let him lead me. 
But he said, I'll never forget this. He said, I knew in my mind what he was telling me was a lie, but he was so powerful in that environment, I could not tell him no to his face. So you know what Mike did? He said, hold on, I got to think about this for a minute. I got to pray about it. He left, went to solitude and silence and let God tell him who he was all over again. And he made a decision that day, not to go back in that room, not to call that guy, not to engage it again. And I heard about this because we had a conference one time and we were all there in a room like this and the host of the conference got up and said, hey, you know, we want to honor Mike today. It's just all the work he's done over the last 30 years. And, and they said, listen, if you have been impacted by Mike's life, if he's mentored you, if he's taught you, if he's trained you, if he's done anything in a significant way, would you stand up? And a bunch of us, including me, stood up. And then he said, look around the room, and if anybody there that is standing up now has been a significant impact on your life, would you stand up there? He did it two or three times, but before we were done, almost the entire room was standing. Now hear me, none of that would have happened without that pivotal moment where Mike stepped back in solitude and silence and said, God, where do you want me to go with my life? Here's the thing, I don't know what your moment's going to be. I don't know it. I don't know what the moment of defining moment of our church is going to be in the next hundred years or 10 or five, but I do know it's coming. And the invitation is not to wait then to decide what would Jesus be doing, to decide right now to prepare for that moment because it might be the biggest impact. Who knows who will be standing because of the impact God has made through this church. And Father God, that's our prayer. We give you our lives and we ask you, you please train us in the rhythm. It's different for every one of us. How much do we need to engage and be around others? How much do we need to step back and just be quiet with you? Only you can define that. Would you please do that for us? And Father, I just, I really want to pray this on my heart right now. If anybody in this series is hearing anything we're talking about is one more to-do list. If people are walking out of this room burdened, would you, Holy Spirit, change that? And remind us, your practices, Jesus, you said your burden is not heavy. So if the burden's heavy, Father God, let them know that that's the devil's voice, not yours. Teach us how to step into, as your scripture says, the unforced rhythms of grace. The glorious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.